Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, Dr. Jason Kinderchuk clarifies the difference between infection-induced immunity and vaccine-induced immunity. There is no natural immunity. Cardiologist Dr. John Weisler talks about blood clots and vaccines. And Kelly O'Donnell, a singer-songwriter, shares her personal story of a life of anxiety. And how your sexual behavior changed during the pandemic? We tell you here on the podcast. Plus, Organon, a women's health company, has a wonderful new women's health initiative. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. As trucker-led protests expand beyond Ottawa, countries and provinces are removing restrictions. What are the potential impacts of this murderous herd immunity? Potentially murderous herd immunity. Will people pay for this with their lives or their health? Well, joining me once again on the program and helping us to unpack all of this is Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. He's an assistant professor in medical microbiology and infectious diseases at the University of Manitoba. He also holds a Canada research chair in the molecular pathogenesis of emerging viruses. His research expertise has focused on emerging virus pathogenesis and outbreak preparedness with a focus on low and middle income countries, including outreach activities in Sierra Leone, Gabon, and Kenya. Good evening, Dr. Kindrachuk. Thanks so much for joining me again. Thanks for having me on, Maureen. Well, every week it's very different. And so this week, uh, it seems to be politically motivated that there is this collective sigh of the pandemic is over and countries like Denmark are dropping all restrictions, mandatory mask wearing, social distancing, verification of vaccination or test status. Large events are being held. Norway is following suit and France, Germany, Poland, Norway, Britain, Austria, all in the face of rising coronavirus cases. And uh, now they're also going to change the way they count the cases. So the mathematical equation has changed, I guess, in the political interest of profits. Uh, what is the scientist's thought on all of this? That's a good question. Uh, you know, I think we're kind of sitting here and, and, and watching to see what what everybody does. You know, I think that certainly it was, it was telling this week with, with WHO still coming forward and saying, listen, we, we don't want to see certainly people joining this uh, just based on, um, you know, kind of a game of leapfrog where, you know, one country starts the push and then you see everybody following suit, um, you know, somewhat, you know, irrespective of what their own internal situation is with COVID. Um, But I think there's also this aspect too, where people are tired and there's uh, certainly an aspect of this saying, okay, when, when are we ready to say, yeah, you know, probably the, the benefits right now outweigh the risks, so we should move forward. And, and there, there is no equation for it. So I think that's the, the difficult part is trying to discuss this and, and adding that nuance in of saying we, we don't have any sort of math that tells us this is the correct situation at this point. This is very much trial and error. It's, it, we're taking certainly educated um, guesses at some of this, um, but there, there is an aspect of saying, okay, are we ready to test the waters? And I, and I think obviously certain countries and, uh, and certain provinces are ready to do that. Whether it's the right decision, uh, time is going to tell us that, right? Certainly 
uh, we will find out with Omicron where certainly where we are in regards to reinfections and what that looks like and how that impacts long-term health. The bigger question is, what happens if there's another variant of concern that emerges? Um, how quickly will countries be willing to, uh, to reenact different restrictions if, if they need to? And how willing will their populace uh, be to uh, to reinforce some of those, or or at least to appreciate the need for reinforcement. So, uh, it, it's it's very much up in the air right now. So, yeah, I, I, certainly I feel uneasy about it. Um, don't quite know what to expect yet. Yeah, and you know, some of the provinces in Canada are also going to be lifting restrictions as well. Alberta and uh, Saskatchewan, where you are. Yeah. Um, but will this herd immunity strategy, this sort of global herd immunity strategy, you mentioned it could inevitably lead to an increase in infections on other continents, in particular because even fewer people are vaccinated in uh, countries. Only 74%, for example, in Germany, only 76% in France are fully vaccinated, 81% in Denmark. And then, of course, some of the third world countries have significantly lower vaccination rates. So will this increase the risk of more infectious and deadly variants developing that are resistant to the current vaccines that we have? Well, the, the big question for us right now is, obviously, you know, what, what will the next variant look like? We, we are going to see, certainly we already are seeing other variants, um, but what's the next variant going to look like that, that is able to start to, to gain some ground and potentially be able to, to compete with, with Omicron? The, the more transmission and the more oxygen we give this virus, the more that, that we are likely to see that. So that, that's, that's a concern for us, especially in, in those areas where we have low vaccine coverage. Now, when we get to this idea of herd immunity, you know, it's, it's funny how cyclic the, this pandemic has been in regards to discussion of different concepts. Herd immunity was something that, you know, certainly around the time of Delta and the start of Omicron, I think we were back and saying, OK, listen, herd immunity, are we ever going to actually be able to reach it based on infectiousness and, and durability of immunity? It's a good question. We, we don't know. Now we're back talking about, well, we're probably going to be close to herd immunity. It's frustrating for me as a scientist that, that has gotten into you know, scientific communication um, to see this because we, we, we don't know what herd immunity looks like for this virus yet or if it's achievable because it's not just based on the amount of immunity you have in the population at a particular point in time. It also depends on the durability of that. Um, and that's something for Omicron we don't necessarily know yet, whether it's through infection or whether it's through vaccination, what that looks like across different groups of people. Um, so I, I think we, we have to, again, be very transparent when we talk about these terms and saying, listen, we, we hope that we can get to a herd immunity uh, you know, uh, you know, area within, uh, within our populations where, where we can you know, kind of get tra- transmission suppressed. Um, is that likely? We don't know. Um, but but we, we will find out. And there are some countries that just want to let her rip, which is extremely dangerous because we have a the you know uh, potential for a frightening prognosis of long COVID, and long COVID threatens to become a widespread chronic disease for a lot of people. Um, but you know, a lot of people. First, I want to say, any callers out there want to call in? Are you particularly tired of the pandemic? Give us have a question for the doctor. The number to call one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. But you know, a lot of people say, "I'm vaccinated. I had COVID. 
uh, you know, I'm fully vaccinated. I, I've had COVID. It's fine. People think that herd immunity means, you know, so many people have been infected with Omicron and they've been fully vaccinated and, and we've had enough. You know, that, that seems to be the yeah. formula for this herd immunity strategy that many countries are um, partaking in, are, you know, walking down that road. Um, but, you know, is, as you say, what does herd immunity actually look like to a scientist, not to a politician? Yeah, no, it, it's a great question, right? And, and I think it goes back to this idea when we talk about, you know, the virus being endemic and this idea of living with the virus. I, there, there's, an enda- there's a certain danger in talking about this virus already being endemic um, because the fact is, as we remove restrictions, we don't yet know what the pressure is going to look like on the healthcare system. Manitoba, yes, hospitalizations are stabilizing, but they're stabilizing at a very, very high, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, rate of uh, intake right now. We look at the, the amount of beds that are that are being uh, required. So, are we sustainable at this point in time? Probably not. And then I also look at the other aspect. Listen, I just had a you know a three year old that was home for the last three days because of a really high fever. Thankfully, COVID negative. Um, mm-hmm. But it was it was concerning. There's also this aspect of saying, oh what happens when kids or, or people that are susceptible get sick? What are the, the um, ramifications for, for people that are in different socioeconomic status where they can't necessarily take time off work um, to just be able to stay home with, with their kid because they're sick because transmission is high in the community. So we, we've got to address all of these different issues. It's, it's complex. It's far beyond my, my brain power and intelligence to, to get around, uh, but we, we need really smart people to make these decisions. Dr. Jason Kindrachuk is my guest. He is a uh, an epidemiologist, assistant professor in medical microbiology and infectious diseases. Dr. Kindrachuk, we've got a bunch of callers on the line, so we're going to go to Francisco in Toronto. Hello, Francisco. Hey, thank you for taking my call. How are you doing? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing excellent, thank you. Great. I guess uh, my question uh, for the doctor would be, um, he was talking about it earlier, um, stating about uh, studies and whatnot, um, about not sure how they're going to proceed in terms of going from a pandemic to an endemic uh, with COVID. Um, I'm wondering, now that we're slightly over two years into this pandemic, why haven't they put any resources towards figuring out what natural immunity means with COVID? And why, because uh, never in the past, if you caught the flu and you recovered from the flu, would your doctor go and then suggest to get the flu vaccine afterwards? So I'm wondering why the narrative with our government is that even if you catch COVID, wait eight weeks and then go get your booster shot, even though you've already taken two shots, caught the virus, now should have some type of natural immunity, which in the past used to exist, but currently it doesn't seem to exist in science anymore. And why did natural immunity suddenly leave science? Okay, thanks, Francisco. Great question, Dr. Kinderchuk. Well, the easy question is it never did leave science. I mean, I just looked at uh, a couple of uh, articles that, on recent studies uh, from the uh, Journal of Medi- the American Medical Association and others who have been looking that exact question. Certainly, uh, you know, as somebody that sat on um, uh, grant review boards for for Canada as well as beyond, 
uh, throughout the pandemic, uh, the, the question of what natural immunity and, and really, again, talk about natural immunity. Let's be fair. Let's talk about vaccine induced immunity or infection induced immunity. They're both immunity. There's no natural immunity. Um, we when we talk about this idea of infection induced immunity, that question has been going on since really the earliest days of the first cases in China. We've already been looking at long-term uh, uh, stability and durability of immune responses, breadth of those immune responses against uh, additional variants. Um, those questions remain for Omicron. They certainly were, were proceeding through for Alpha and Delta. Um, but I would also say that when we think about influenza, the reason we talk about an annual influenza vaccine, irrespective, again, of whether or not somebody has been infected in the past or not, is because we know that the influenza virus changes from year to year. Dr. John Weisler is my guest. You've heard his voice before. It is heart month, so it's a uh, perfect uh, time to have him on this month And because um, there are so many issues, especially related to COVID. He's an experienced cardiologist and head of cardiology at Lionsgate Hospital in North Vancouver, British Columbia, and the North Shore Heart Center. He deals in hypertension, atrial fib, coronary artery disease, pacemaker, pacemakers, and sports cardiology. Good evening, Dr. Weisler. How are you? I'm great, Brain. Good evening. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me. Busy month for the heart doctor, would you say? <laughs> do, do people uh, actually pay a little bit more attention to their heart issues? Uh, maybe some of them, you know. I think it's uh, probably more the focus on, you know, emotional hearts, Valentine's Day and happiness. But, um, you know, the, the February's heart month idea, I think that does get some people's attention and you know, generates a few people here and there to check in, which is always good, you know, and make sure that they, they're doing everything they should be. That's fantastic. And if you would like to check in with the doctor, the number to call is one 399 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. We do have a caller on the line. We have Evelyn from Winnipeg, Manitoba. My biggest issue right now is the safety of Manitobans right now with regards to those truckers. Um, we had a situation at the ledge where somebody drove over some, uh, some, some protesters. And oh. the fact that we're, yeah, and the fact that we're not able to conduct our lives the way, the way that we're allowed as Manitoban citizens right now because they're from different provinces. What happens if they get sick with the COVID? Do they get, do they get proper treatment with our hospitals because of, this, because of the protesters? Like, that's my biggest issue right now, too, because the fact is, like, who gets precedence over that? Yeah. So sorry, what was that last part? But who gets precedence over, over us Manitobans over the truckers? Oh, if the truckers I, I think get it's sick with COVID... Correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Weisler, but I think it's, you know, fair and even across uh, Canadians and the hospital system is a triage system. We don't turn anybody yeah. away, but I agree with exactly. you. It's a tremendous shame that that is going on. I know a state of emergency has been declared in Ottawa and, and also people who have been providing gas to the truckers so yeah. they could stay idle and blow their horns all day long and all night long. <laughs> they're they're um, not allowed to do that, though. If, if people are caught sneaking in, um, sneaking in resources yes. to truckers, they'll be, they'll be um, fine just as, just as much as the truckers will be. So, yes, um, subject to arrest. That's good. That's good. That's good. Well, However, the wording I, was I, subject I'm to actually, arrest. I'm actually, disturbed, 
I'm mentally disturbed by all of this because I've got bipolar as it as it is, you know, and with the fact that you know we have to re- we have to take detours to get around the ledge. Um, if, if you want to get somewhere, is another thing because our, our lives are disrupted because of these stupid oh, people. And yeah, it, it's 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 very anxiety provoking, and uh, yeah, it's it's really horrible. But thank you so much, Evelyn, for for calling in. Yeah. Stay safe. Yeah. Try and be yeah. Yeah, calm. We're going to be talking about anxiety a little bit later on in the program. So yeah, sure. Thank feel you, for Evelyn, for sure. Uh, I know it's awful, and and that would cause stress on anybody's heart. Would you? Is is that true? Yeah, that's a tough situation to be in. You know, I, I feel for Evelyn. You know, worried. You know, um, will she get the care she needs if she has to go to hospital? And you know, how much COVID is being spread by all this? And all all good questions. And yeah, you know, this is a this is a tough time for people for their hearts and the rest of them too. You know, the anxiety and the stress does affect things like blood pressure, make our hearts work harder, and it can increase the rates of some, some heart disease. So it's, it's a tough time. It does indeed. Um, I, I had a, uh, if you have any questions for the doctor, one 877 cardiologist, Dr. John Weisler joins me. Um, I had a patient this week who came in to see me uh, for, uh, for another issue, but also wanted to talk to me about um, mandated vaccines for her job. She needed to um, be vaccinated and she'd actually had vaccinations from another country that wasn't approved in uh, this country. And, and so she was being recommended to get a booster of either the Johnson and Johnson, because that's a one and done or the Pfizer, the series um, which would be a booster or just start another series. And, and she was very, very concerned about blood clots. She wasn't sure which one caused the blood sh- clots, but she didn't want to do this. She didn't want to lose her job either. Um, but what, what, are the, what are the risks of blood clots with the vaccines? So the, the risk of blood clots are, are very small. So it's a common, you know, a, a common concern with patients because it's, you know, it's been mentioned in the, you know, in the news and in the media. Um, but th- the main concern is with the um, AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. Um, so not the Pfizer, Moderna, and not the Johnson and Johnson. Um, and it's a very uh, unusual mechanism where it does it. So it, it, um, when it when it causes it, it triggers a sort of immune reaction that then makes our platelets, um, which are, you know, cells, cell, cell components in our blood that help our blood clot, it helps those, like it makes those destroy themselves somewhat and you get lower numbers of platelets and that, um, it's, it's a autoimmune mediated reaction causes clots to form and they're clots in an unusual location um, when they happen, they're in the uh, venous sinuses of the brain. So they're, they're extremely rare. They're one in um, many thousands of patients, um, only really been shown with the AstraZeneca vaccine. And, and so the, the precautions, um, they occur sort of anywhere from a few days to about two weeks after the vaccination. The symptoms, um, terrible, intractable headache and visual changes are what people should look for and obviously go to emergency if they get them. But they're exceedingly rare. You know, the, people have made a big deal about them and, you know, rightly because this is a public health emergency and, you know, everybody's getting vaccinated. But it's a very rare complication um, and it's really only been linked to the AstraZeneca vaccine. So other vaccines, ah. not an issue. Okay, and, and it's because, not DVT, for example, or deep vein exactly. thrombosis. So, 
Okay. Another another common question: people who've had like heart attacks or they've had previous you know blood clots, DVT, pulmonary embolism, are they at greater risk uh, from the vaccine of getting another clot? And the answer is no, because it works through a very different mechanism. Very, very interesting. Uh, you know, there's so much confusion around that. And also, people don't realize that you are a much greater risk um, of getting having a blood clot if you get COVID than if you get a vaccine. I do have another caller on the line. We have Benny from Abbotsford, British Columbia. Hello, Benny. Hello there. Um, I want to know what the basic things a 77-year-old can do to keep his heart healthy. Also, I take apoamylodipine to open up the arteries so the blood pressure pills I take uh, Ramparil will be able to keep my blood pressure low is that basically can I be guaranteed I won't have a heart attack by taking these pills so um, those are both great questions, Benny, and thank you. And uh, maybe maybe I'll tackle the second one first. Um, you mentioned amlodipine, which is one blood pressure drug that we use, and I think also Ramipril. So both are extremely safe medications. They're used in millions upon millions of patients. They're generic, used worldwide. Both are very good options. Both have good data that they help to uh, protect, so they reduce your blood pressure, and in doing so, that they help to reduce the risk of heart attack and stroke and kidney disease, which is really what we're after. You know, blood pressure, like all these other things we follow, are sort of a means to an end, so you don't have, you know, those those bad things like, like heart attacks. Uh, and then your, your um, first question is, you know, the million-dollar question, how can I be free of heart disease? So, there are no guarantees, and you know you can be more refined with a deeper discussion with your doctor. You can go see a specialist. There's more advanced things you can do, but the basics um, are very effective. So, you know, uh, exercise regularly, uh, control your weight, uh, control your waist circumference, and then know your numbers. So, know your blood pressure, which sounds like you certainly do. Um, your cholesterol, your blood sugar. Uh, those are all important numbers to to have normal. And the lower, the better controlled they are the better you'll do with respect to heart disease. So the lower your chance of heart disease. And then, you know, if you smoke, stop smoking and try to con- control stress. And th- those are kind of the, the big ones. You know, controlling stress is, is always hard, but do what you can. But regular exercise, controlling your weight, and then knowing your other numbers, you know, your blood pressure, your uh, cholesterol, and your and your sugars. Excellent question. Thank you so much. If you have a question for the doctor, the number to text or call, 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. Cardiologist Dr. John Weisler will happily answer your questions. I have a text message for you, Dr. Weisler. Hello, Maureen. (laughs) Could you please ask Dr. Weisler if this particular drug is out and available in Canada to help with atherosclerosis? It's called Trudescamine, trudescamine, uh, helping reverse plaque buildup. Thank you. So that one, I don't know. I haven't heard of that one. I, I do, um, you know, we do clinical trials in our in our office, and uh, and uh, we have two research coordinators, so we hear about you know new products all the time. We have some neat ones that are coming, but that particular one, I haven't um, heard of yet. Okay, so I think um, there's been some. Research done at the University of Aberdeen. It's using preclinical mouse models, so 
uh, maybe it's very, very early uh, clinical trials. But, um, the, you know, some of these natural, air quotes, <laughs> meds um, or supplements, I should say, and, and maybe it falls under that. I'm not exactly sure. Um, Dr. Weisler, we talked about stress a little bit, and I think there are so many people that are stressed. I mean, Evelyn phoned in about the truck convoy. I think that's mm-hmm. stressing a lot of people. Fortunately, we have an antidote for that, and that's the Olympics. <laughs> so I think we can escape, um, you know, escape watching the Olympics on TV. Thank goodness. But I mean, I can't imagine that those truckers are, are not uh, stressed. They must be stressed, but not that I feel badly for them, but they must be significantly stressed. So I want to get to that, but I do want to get to our caller first, which is uh, David in Toronto. Hello, David. Hi, how are you doing? Fine, thank you. How are you? I'm good. My, my uh, situation was that, sadly, five years ago, my wife of 51, who had uh, atrial fibrillation diagnosed maybe six or seven months earlier, Unfortunately, and uh, she ended up taking a turn for the worse, and ended up in the hospital. And she, and she, uh, you know, we tried some uh, procedures and the medication, but unfortunately, she ended up having uh, a couple strokes. And then we were at the point where, you know, her cardiologist said she would not leave here unless she had a heart transplant. But unfortunately, she had one. Oh. She, she had the second stroke. Her leg wouldn't move, so she was taken off the transplant plant list and then she had one more stroke and unfortunately uh we had to take her off the ECMO machine and uh, she passed away but the thing was for her brother and my son who's 12 we had an autopsy and we we had no answers so I was just wondering if the doctor could maybe address that situation because the ironic thing is she has a, her mother still alive at age 86 and she's had atrial fibrillation for 15 years so I know there could be something deeper, but I just wanted to see what the doctor had to say. Yeah, uh, thanks for your question, uh, David, and I'm very sorry for your loss and the loss of your wife. That's, uh, that's terrible. Um, atrial fibrillation uh, by itself, there, there is a big link to stroke. That's the main um, you know, complication that we all fear, and that's why you know about most patients, about 90%, we put them on blood thinners because they're effective at reducing that risk. Um, in, in your wife's case, there's probably more than atrial fibrillation um, involved. My, my guess would be also that she had a significant decline in the function of her heart muscle, so her heart muscle didn't squeeze well, something we call cardiomyopathy, um, because that's where we would usually consider you know, things like heart transplant and ECMO to help a heart that's not working well. And and the two the two conditions often occur together, the weak heart and the atrial fibrillation, and they often reinforce each other. So they each each makes the other one worse. Um, I think um, the most important things uh, for you and for your son and other, you know, first degree relatives, so any other siblings that that um, you're, you're, you know, you're, I guess your son, they'd also be your son or your daughter, but any other any other first degree relatives would be um, screening with a ECG to see the heart's rhythm and an echocardiogram. And that's probably all that, you know, you can, you can do um, realistically to now look for anything in yourself. Um, an echocardiogram and then especially for your son as he grows up, 
in five to ten years, I would repeat the echocardiogram and make sure that's normal. It might also be worth, if you have access to a genetic counselor, um, you can ask your family doctor. Each province is different, and there's different programs will accept, um, you know, referrals with different criteria. But there may also be a genetic counselor that could review things with you. Uh, there's no like readily done or widely done gene testing that I'm aware of, but you know there may be something particular to your situation that's worth considering. Dr. John Weisler is my guest. I'm so fortunate to have such great guests like Dr. Jason Kinderchuk and now Dr. John Weisler. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Weisler. Um, Stress stress and the impact on uh, your blood vessels and COVID-19 and the impact on your blood vessels. Um, How critical is that? How important is it to keep your blood pressure down? We We only have about... Three minutes left of the show, of this segment, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but what what can people do to get their blood pressure down? What number do they, do they need to have it be? And and how does stress impact? So whatever you can say about high blood pressure, <laughs> give it a whirl. Uh, it's uh, it's a very important risk factor, Marine. So great question, great topic. Um, stress uh, makes our blood pressure go higher through a number of ways. Makes our heart work harder. Makes our arteries squeeze harder, makes our kidneys work a little bit harder, retain a bit more fluid. Um, so you've got to control your stress the uh, best way you can, whatever way helps you relax. And then exercise regularly. Uh, try to eat a diet that's reasonably healthy, low in salt. Don't smoke um, alcohol if you have it, one drink a night. The ideal number for your blood pressure is 120 over 80, and that's um, the lowest, generally the lowest risk for complications from high blood pressure, so heart disease, stroke, kidney damage, uh, eye damage. Um, and, and, you know, where exactly it has to be when a doctor will add medication varies. For people that are otherwise healthy, it's usually 140 over 90 or above. Your doctor will start adding medications. Uh, people with kidney disease, previous heart disease, other medical problems, we use lower numbers, 1, 130. Uh, and the ideal is 120. So you want to be as close to 120 over 80 as you reasonably can. Uh, exercise sort of five times a week, diet low in salt, don't smoke, and alcohol in moderation. I sort of like key messages, I think. Yeah, and I think all of those are fantastic messages. Dr. Weisler, thank you so much for being on the program tonight. I really appreciate it, especially in this very me. busy month. And uh, and have a wonderful Valentine's Day <laughs> next Thanks, week. Thanks, Maureen. All the best. Thank all you right. again. Thanks for having me. Your mental health is just so important. And uh, somebody's going to share their story on this hour. I'm also going to talk to you about some of the sexual behaviors a lot of you have had during the pandemic it uh we do study these kinds of things and so i did come across a very interesting uh study if you're up late at night checking out people's profiles or whatever uh you know this may be of interest to you and then also going to be talking about a women's health company that has a very amazing initiative that I hope a lot of other companies will take. But right now I want to talk about anxiety and stress and depression, especially during the COVID pandemic. You know, the pandemic has had a major impact on so many lives. We may all be in the same ocean, but we are not in the same vessel. Some of us are in bathtubs while other others are in yachts. Some have power boats, some have sailboats. So, you know, it can be different and at different times for people because it's gone on for such a protracted period of time. And you can see the stress in people who are, you know, having their little freedom uh, 
walks or whatever, you know, I, I imagine I, I try to have compassion for those people because I, I imagine it's a, it's a lack of understanding, a uh, lack of, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's difficult to understand T cell receptors and, and how the immune systems function uh, uh, in our bodies. And so it's overwhelming for people and it can be very stressful and then it, and, and there's ego involved and people just want to win. And, and, you know, other people are, are less compassionate than others. Some are empathic. Others are, are, people are very cold. It's just the nature of people. But this pandemic can certainly cause strong emotions, not only in adults, but also in children. You know, we have to do these public health actions like social distancing and, you know, wearing masks, but they can make us feel isolated. Being at home, not going out, not being able to gather as a family in a restaurant can make people feel isolated and lonely. And that can also increase stress and anxiety. And, you know, it's sometimes people will turn to substances to deal with their anxiety other people might take to the streets and because they're so frustrated because they their coping skills are not very um, beneficial for them. And so, you know, people act in many different ways. Many people have lost their jobs. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. Many people have lost their homes. They've lost their loved ones. And so they're grieving. I mean, it's just been a horrific time for so many people. And stress can cause feelings of fear and anger, sadness, worry, numbness, or frustration. You can have changes in appetite or energy. You can have difficulty concentrating or making decisions. I mean, really, especially financial decisions. Some people just don't have a good hold on their finances. I know that because I see people in my clinical practice who are having difficulty with that in the good times. <laughs> and then when it becomes tough, you lose one salary or uh, both salaries in some cases, you know, that may lead to difficulty sleeping or having nightmares. You know, people can experience physical reactions, especially if the stress turns to anxiety, especially if it is a diagnosis. You may experience headaches or stomach aches, body pains, or skin rashes as well. And, and if you have a comorbidity, your chronic health problem may actually worsen. Or if you already have a mental health condition and anxiety is the number one mental illness in North America, that may worsen as well. And loneliness is just brutal. And so many people who live alone, but were able to actually go out and, and mingle with, with people no longer can do that. Many of their friends have moved away from cities. And so they find themselves all alone in a pandemic and too afraid to go and visit their, their family. It's natural to feel stress, anxiety, grief, and worry during the COVID pandemic, but oftentimes it can actually lead to anxiety. But there are some healthy ways to cope, and you want to take deep breaths, stress, stretch um, for your stress, exercise regularly, get plenty of sleep, and avoid alcohol, tobacco, and substance use. And so you also want to continue with routine preventive measures like vaccinations or cancer screenings. But, you know, and I really implore you to get vaccinated with a COVID-19 vaccine, but take some time to unwind and definitely connect with others, whether it's on Zoom or whatever way. Many, many people have experienced an increase in anxiety and or depression during the pandemic. It's a very, very common mental illness that uh, is associated still, unfortunately, with the stigma 
But uh, I really feel that one of the silver linings of the pandemic was raising awareness about anxiety and or depression. And so I'm delighted to have my next guest. She is a singer songwriter. She is a rising star and emerging artist. And she's joining me on the line to talk about her experience with anxiety and depression. She even wrote a song about it. This is Kelly O'Donnell. Good evening, Kelly. Hi. How are you? I'm doing really well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for asking. I love your music, as you know. Um, I'm fortunate you. enough to have um, have listened to it. I love music. And so, and I in particular love the song that you wrote about your own experience. So as I said earlier in the intro, many people experience anxiety and or depression throughout their lives, but oftentimes it's a secret. It's associated with shame or a stigma. Um, and I'm so delighted that you're going to share your story because I really feel that when we share our stories, we empower others. So uh, mm. tell me a little bit about yourself and, and when you experienced uh, anxiety and depression and, and if the pandemic also had an impact on you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, um, it's it's like pre- predominantly anxiety. I, I luckily have not like dealt with too much depression. I've had like bouts of it throughout my life, I guess, but anxiety like is definitely something I've experienced since as long as I can remember. Um, and it's just like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's something I didn't even realize was happening to me until I was maybe about 19 or 20. And I was like, Oh, this makes sense. <laughs> like this is what I've been feeling all this time. And, and what are some of the know. signs and symptoms that you've had? For me, I don't know. Like, so the song I wrote retrograde, um, sort of talks about like feeling out of your body. And that's a lot of what I experience is just, mm-hmm. yeah, just like random panic and feeling just like I'm not, I'm not present or I'm, I'm like, I can't ex- understand what's happening to me. Right. Uh, I've heard many people explain that. Yeah. I, I've, I've heard many people say it's a little bit of an outer body experience. So they kind of almost are looking at themselves. Did, did that lead to you feeling tired or irritable or having muscle tension or feelings of worry? Oh yeah. All of the above <laughs> for sure. Oh <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and all of that can lead to sleep problems, especially difficulty mm-hmm. falling asleep. And did you have that as well? <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> still do. <laughs> yes, yeah. These are, oh, still do. That's too bad because I can't yeah. imagine uh, having sleep issues. Um, but yeah. you know, oftentimes people with anxiety feel restless or wound up or edgy. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so you said you were nineteen, but you'd experienced it your entire life. So even as a child. Yeah, I mean, I sleep especially is it's been like kind of the number one thing for me. It's like you know, you go to bed and everything's quiet and that's when your mind has so much time to run, especially as someone who has anxiety. It's just like the absence of all the distractions of the day are like, oh my gosh, here are the 20 impossible scenarios that I'm so worried about right now. And um, I just sort of thought that I was like, I don't know, just like, I just I just thought like I was difficult or something as a kid. I just was like, oh, this is just how I am. I'll grow out of it. And then I sort of learned more about anxiety and I was like, Mm, that makes sense for me. Wow. And how did you learn about anxiety? Uh, just sort of when I, I mean, I, I don't remember, I guess, originally, but I, for, for myself, when I went to university, I just, it was, 
I think being away from home for the first time exasperated a lot of that. And it was becoming more and more noticeable. And for me, my anxiety sort of attaches to um, disasters. So like natural disasters, things like that. Ah. And I was living on Vancouver Island and I was like, oh, my God, if the big one earthquake happens, you know, there's like a threat to Vancouver <laughs> Island about um, oh. <laughs> like a tsunami. <laughs> so I used to that was when I was like, I, I just started fixating on this idea of the tsunami happening. And that was when I realized oh. what was happening to me. Right. And, and uh, you know what? I mean, we're, we're kind of chuckling, but a lot of people actually describe the very same thing. And when you're under stress or anxious, you know, your system, your neurological system can kick into action and physical s- symptoms can also happen like headaches, nausea, shortness of breath, or even stomach aches. Did you experience any of those or shakiness? You mentioned the earthquake. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely an internal earthquake. Um, yeah, shakiness. Um, I've had like pain issues, um, like chronic pain that can be exasperated uh, by anxiety or, or um, inflamed, I guess, by that. Um, and yeah, headaches. I've I've had I've had definitely physical symptoms like that. I yeah, I used to get like sort of head rushes. Um, and you kind of almost feel like you're blacking out a little bit in a way. Right, right. Um, so yeah. what did you end up doing besides writing an amazing song, Retrograde? Um, and we'll get to that in a minute. But what did you, um, how did you treat your anxiety? Uh, I did try medication for a little bit, um, which for me just ended up not being my route of choice. But I think, you know, it's a great option for people. Um, and I've been in therapy and that's, that's helped a lot. Um, I just find ways to, I don't know, just to distract myself or, or just phrases I've picked up to be like, this isn't real or this will be okay. Or, or just methods of being like checking in with myself and grounding exercises, things like that, um, have worked for me. That is fantastic. You know, I love that you said therapy because, and I agree, medication is critically important for many people. And and typically it's the SSRIs, selective serotonin mm-hmm. reuptake inhibitors like Prozac and Zoloft and Paxils uh, of the world. But what people, they oftentimes they want a quick fix and they do feel better with that. But it's really helpful to add on therapy, uh, especially, um, you know, mindfulness or talk therapy, CBT uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is is critically important. Now, do you um, add exercise into your routine? I do now. I did, I didn't really for a long time, and now exercise has become um, like a, it's very helpful. <laughs> I think for a long time, it, yeah. I oh sorry, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just so lost in a lot of it that you know people would always say things like you know exercise things like that are. are they really help and I'd be like I don't think so <laughs> and then when that became part of my life I it for me made a big difference right and what kind of exercise do you do um cardio weightlifting um sometimes yoga things like that fantastic absolutely and you know it can be as simple as walking uh for people yeah. so what made you decide to write about your experience through song through music for me, that's just always been sort of my natural route. As long as I can remember, I've I've just written down what I've, I'm feeling. And um, I wrote specifically retrograde at a time where 
this was just really present in my life and it was something I, I didn't know how to um, ignore or, or work through. And uh, for me, I mean, that's part of like songwriting is something that I do to make myself feel better. Once I, you know, like it's like journaling, but you know, like, sort of a next iteration of that. It, it just, yeah. 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 It, it just, it just awesome. really helps me feel like um, I can flesh out these feelings I'm having and separate themselves from me or separate them from myself. Right. And, and what are some of the lines in it that you felt um, uh, underscored your anxiety? Um, there was, there's a line that's like, um, if my mind was lawless, I'd be planted in the forest. Uh, mm-hmm. just sort of like, if I, if I could like do all, if I, if, if this didn't happen to me and I didn't experience this anxiety, there's so many things I would, <laughs> I could do. <laughs> like, I just right. would love to like exist in a more natural version of myself, but there's like limitations and fears that my mind has made up and, um, you know, it just, it's, it's hard to be like, okay, this is me. And then this is something that happens to me. I'm not my anxiety. And right. If I didn't have that, I'd be able to just be this free version of myself. Yeah. That's such a, that's such a very good point. What would you suggest besides listening to your song retrograde, which is on YouTube um, and we've played it here. Uh, what would you recommend to people who might be experiencing the symptoms of anxiety? Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I think it can be so different for everyone, but I think talking to people is so helpful. It helps to say it out loud. That makes it go away a lot of the time. If not, mm-hmm. you know, if only temporarily. Uh, therapy is great. I really recommend everyone go to therapy. <laughs> um you know, medication can be a great route um, for a lot of people, for sure. Um, writing, journaling, stuff like that, really helpful. Exactly. And, and there's no shame in it. I, no, and, and It would be great. I think the pandemic did help to destigmatize it a bit because it exposed so mm-hmm. many people who were experiencing it and who were not and then found themselves being very anxious at a very challenging time in our world. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. And where can people hear your song besides here? They they can hear me on uh, Spotify, Apple Music, anywhere you get your music, really, iTunes. Um, My name is Kel, (laughs) K-E-L-L-E. And uh, and YouTube, I'm I'm everywhere. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Cal. Really appreciate having you on the show tonight. Thank you so much. It was so nice talking to you. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. It's that time of night again, the time you go to bed with me. Hopefully this won't put you to sleep, but might wake you up to the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on sexual behaviors. I want to review a study with you on the findings from a national survey in the United States that was done by Neil Gleason and Eli Coleman, amongst others. The studies from the first months of the COVID-19 pandemic and the resulting lockdown and social distancing measures demonstrated that there have been, naturally, decreases in sexual frequency and relationship satisfaction. I mean, I remember at that time, I just got so many calls from people who were just panicking 
you know, they married the wrong person. They couldn't be with this person 24 seven. They realized, you know, that now that they weren't going out to work, they realized, oh my gosh, this is the, the wrong person or people who were engaged in extramarital affairs were also panicking as well. So this abstract um, of this particular survey evaluated the ongoing impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on sexual behavior, relationship satisfaction, and intimate partner violence in the United States using a large national convenience sample. There were just about a thousand participants across the U.S. who were recruited in October 2020 to complete a cross-sectional online survey. And the participants were asked to take a look back and report their sexual behavior frequency. And so a retrospective and, and also look at their satisfaction with their relationship and then also any experiences with intimate partner violence during the pandemic and before the pandemic. The results demonstrated that there was a small but significant decrease in some retrospectively reported partner sexual activities. And men reported a small increase in, at that time, October 2020, in masturbation and pornography use. There was no evidence for a change in relationship satisfaction or intimate partner violence. But both men and women reported a small decrease in sexual pleasure and women reported a small decrease in sexual desire, which is already low because women actually report double the amount of decreased sexual desire as do men. But both men and women can experience decreased sexual desire. And it has lots of reasons, boredom in the relationship. And especially when you're in the same home. Now here it is, you're married to the same person for 10, 15 years, 20, 30, whatever, same old, same old, not you again tonight, honey. Um, <laughs> Oh no, uh, but now you're 24 seven living together uh, all the time. You're in the home. People are afraid to go out. Maybe only one is going out just to pick up groceries or whatever. If we think back to that time, the, the sexual behaviors with greatest reduction were casual sex, hookups, and the number of partners. Makes sense. You've now been relegated to your home. And the most diminished as aspect of sexual functioning was sexual enjoyment. So depression symptoms, relationship status, and perceived importance of social distancing were the predictors of these reductions. All of this makes sense. Less than half of individuals who engaged with casual sex partners before the start of the pandemic ceased this behavior completely after the start of the pandemic. And they waited on an average six to seven weeks before re-engaging in casual sex. So these results let us know that the effects of the pandemic um, has continued to impact sexual behavior, sexual satisfaction. It's the first known study to evaluate sexual behavior several months into the COVID-19 pandemic that used a, a statistically significant sample size. But of course, the results of the study are limited by the convenient sampling and the cross-sectional design of it. But the results indicate that changes in sexual behavior observed early in the months of the pandemic have continued, but they have had small but significant decreases in many partnered sexual behaviors and a small increase in men's solitary sexual behaviors. So, you know, this was a time during this pandemic, it's either you really appreciate who you're with, you love them even more, you can, you value so much more about them, you're seeing their good side when they're giving you a hand and, and helping you out, literally. Um, 
<laughs> helping you out, whatever, supporting you emotionally or helping with the housework. Um, so this could have gone one way or another, but we certainly definitely see changes in sexual behavior throughout a pandemic. It only makes sense because, you know, people may actually be lonelier. Even if you are living together with somebody, you can certainly experience lonely loneliness or an increased in, um, increase incidence of loneliness. I do a lot of work in sexless marriage, uh, which might surprise a lot of people because oftentimes people think, oh, wow, well, they're married. They must be having sex all the time, but it's actually not necessarily the case. I mean, it is for a lot of couples, but but many, many couples experience sex, sexlessness in their relationship and can be very, very frustrating. And the pandemic certainly can contribute to that. But the stress of the pandemic certainly has actually fueled the relationship issues for many, many couples. And especially when people are together 24 seven, but it's just something to be aware of that, um, you know, how has my sexual relationship changed? Has it improved? Um, has it decreased? Is the frequency decreased? Am I masturbating more? Am I looking at porn more? Am I going online and checking out past loves or, or ex lovers? Or, um, you know, am I, am I spending more time online? Am I chatting with people online? Am I sexting people? That kind of thing. Um, you know, am I masturbating to somebody online that I don't even know? Or, you know, just be aware. It's always good to have that insight and that awareness of the behaviors that you're experiencing and also tie those to the feelings that you have. You know, are you feeling sad? Are you feeling alone in your relationship? Do you wish that you had more sexual experiences within your relationship? Or if you are not partnered, you know, that has a tremendously negative or can have a tremendously negative impact on people who were having hookups and, and also engaging in casual sex. And maybe they had a number of partners and now you're down to zero uh, because there are so many different ideas about the pandemic. And so, you know, many people could feel that, um, you know, they don't want to be near anybody because as we know, kissing can you can transmit COVID-19 by kissing. And so many people have different ideas about, about the pandemic. Anyway, so it's just, I just thought this study was interesting. Uh, it's something to be aware of. It's something to take a look at your own relationship and, and communicate with your partner about it. If you have any fears or worries, or if you would like to increase the pleasure. As many of you may or may not be aware, the COVID-19 pandemic has disproportionately impacted women, affecting not only their physical health more so, but also their mental health. So whenever I hear of an initiative or a program that benefits women or is going to support them a little bit more, I'm extremely interested. I know what it's like to be a woman in the workplace, and I'm sure many of you do as well. So that's why I was delighted to learn of an initiative by Organon Canada, which is a global women's health company who seems to understand the need for a global effort to address her health, H-E-R, health. And so to bring this issue to the forefront, Organon is issuing a very, very significant initiative for women. And joining me on the line to talk about this initiative is Michael Cassia. He is president and managing director of Organon Canada. Good evening, Michael. 
Good evening. Thanks for having me, Maureen. Oh, I'm delighted to have you on the program. Uh, you know, I, I love this initiative. Can you tell me a little bit and the listeners about this particular initiative that will benefit women? Yes, absolutely. So um, as March 8th is International Women's Day, um, when this initiative is going to take place, um, it's a day often used to raise awareness on issues of gender equity. And Organon is designating International Women's Day as a day to recognize the growing health disparities women face that have been in many instances exacerbated by the pandemic. So in honor of International Women's Day on March 8th, Organon will be providing a paid day uh, off for all of our employees who are encouraged to use this time to make a commitment on their own health and the health of the women in their lives. Um, So employees are encouraged to take this time um, to focus on themselves, uh, take back some of the the time on um, that's been lost in terms of health care and mental uh, wellness. And we're hopeful that it has a positive impact uh, for our employee base, but also it helps to raise awareness around the issues. Uh, It's fantastic. Now, if do I understand this correctly? This is a corporate wide day off for all of your employees, not just women. Indeed. So this is for all employees globally. Um, Organon is a multinational company. We have roughly 9,500 employees across the globe. They will all be receiving time off to honor International Women's Day. And the hope is really that we can raise awareness around the the health issues that women face, but then also give time for our employees to, to really focus on themselves and the women in their lives. And so if the the men who are um, going to be off on that day and having a paid day off, it's not really to play golf. And <laughs> the, um, the the goal is for them to perhaps provide some support in terms of childcare or housework. Is that, uh, or assisting with housework, is that the kind of messaging that you're uh, providing to your employees? Absolutely. And I think it's about um, setting examples as well. So leading up to March 8th, I'm hopeful there will be a lot of activities to raise awareness on the initiative. Um, the way I'm spending the day is pretty simple, maybe not so exciting. Uh, my wife and I have had uh, the birth of our second child, Edward, uh, in October of last year. Um, so we have an infant at home in addition to a four-year-old. And uh, while normally we try and split the responsibilities in the way that works for us, I'm taking the day completely to take 100% care of the children, spending time with them and uh, giving a chance for my wife, Charlotte, to, to take care of her. Well, congratulations on the birth of Edward. And that's just a wonderful thing that you're doing. In fact, it makes me want to work for Organon. Why is it important that companies support women? Well, we believe it's absolutely important for companies to do so. Um, our view is that healthy women are the backbone of a thriving, stable and resilient society. That means if she's healthy, she prospers, so does her family, her community, and society more broadly. Um, You know, women obviously have worked very hard to advance, and we also recognize there's a need to highlight disparities in women's health issues, in some instances made worse by the pandemic, as already mentioned. So we're hopeful that this, um, this is a good way to start by looking at our own employees and how they can contribute to, um, um, to raising awareness. It's fantastic. Um, You know, it's uh, oftentimes uh, women, especially in the pandemic, have burdened more of the load in terms of um, homeschooling and looking after the children's needs, the lion's share of the housework. But, But even women going to work can find it 
uh, a much different experience than men do. I had an instance myself in work um, a couple of weeks ago where it, it was just, you know, complete <laughs> what eye roll. That's all I can say. <laughs> or sexism in the workplace. And, you know, it's really a man's world at work or, you know, mansplaining. If you'd like to read a little bit more about my experience, just go to LinkedIn. Um, but, you know, so it's, it's, it is harder for women at work. Um, what made you decide to offer this benefit to all women and employees working at your company? Well, it's really, I think, about raising the, the awareness. We um, look here in Canada, uh, the Alberta Women's Health Foundation, for instance, for your listeners who uh, may not know, is an organization that conducts research and aims to foster equity in, in women's health. Uh, that particular organization found that uh, more women since the pandemic are skipping medical appointments, uh, having their medical appointments postponed or canceled. Um, and, you know, not surprisingly, uh, what we uh, saw even research prior to the pandemic, uh, as you mentioned, 78% of, uh, of women are saying that uh, they put their own health care needs aside to focus on taking care of their family. Um, and women represent the majority of the caregivers for children and adults, as, as we saw from the research. So uh, really, we felt that highlighting some of those issues on International Women's Day when it comes to health care and the impact that it has on, on women. Um, and recent studies have also showed that women are now significantly more burnt out than ever um, through the pandemic, even even more so than men. So it takes a huge toll on physical and mental health, which can affect career progression. And it's important for companies to really um, to highlight the issue and take action to, to support their uh, their employee base. Uh, thank you. And, and I think also it kind of raises awareness about uh, mental health for women. And, and effectively, this could be looked at as a, as a bit of a mental health, a paid mental health day. Have you received any feedback from your employees about this paid mental health day? And, and I love it because it, it raises awareness about the struggles many women face and, and the impact they can have on their emotional and mental health. But what are, what are people telling you? What are your employees saying? Well, the organization internally, the initiative has been overwhelmingly well-received, so uh, really positive feedback here in Canada and also outside of the country. Um, folks appreciate that we're raising awareness around the issues, that we're inviting other organizations to join us, um, appreciative we're concerned about their well-being and their health. So positive from all our teams here in Canada. We've had examples of uh, what different employees will be doing to take advantage of the day. Um, including, you know, health visits, uh, wellness visits, exercise. Uh, in addition, we had one comment from an employee who, who mentioned that she's really appreciative of using the day to visit her mother in a long-term care facility uh, without feeling the need to rush off. So really um, great feedback internally. Uh, outside the company, we're also humbled that an organization like Alberta Women's Health Foundations are partnering with us to raise awareness. Um, and so, you know, we're really humbled uh, with that that organization's mission and that they're willing to partner with us on um, on this initiative. And we're hopeful that other organizations in the public and private sector will be able to join us as well. And we plan on doing outreach between now and March 8th. So hopefully more uh, organizations to join us. I hope so as well. Um, I know that you feel other companies should do this. You mentioned that. Um, do you feel that an initiative like this or other similar types of initiatives that support women just a little bit more, especially during this pandemic, will impact the bottom line uh, for a company? 
Well, so I believe that it's going to have a positive impact for us and for companies over the long run. Does it have a direct impact from this initiative today for our, our employee base, from their wellness? I think so. In the long run, I'm hopeful that this, as well as other initiatives, um, will show to our, uh, our employee base that we're more than just about the business, that we're um, concerned about their well-being. And as a company focused on women's health, uh, I think that demonstrates to them that we're more than just about the business. So I'm hopeful over time, uh, behaving in this way will attract and retain people who care about what we're doing, which in the long run will help us to be more successful. And I think companies that do so and are considerate about the um, specific challenges that different um, individuals will be facing, um, that they will be able to attract and retain um, the right people for their companies as well. Well, it's just an awesome initiative, and I want to thank you personally on behalf of all women out there who would love to just sleep in or uh, just have that extra set of hands to rely on or, or, as you say, go and exercise or go and visit their mothers. Um, you know, it's it's greatly appreciative, and, and I love that Organon is leading the way in that, and I really hope that other companies follow suit as well. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome, and have a fun day with Edward and Edward's sibling <laughs> on Thank March you. 8th. Thanks, so much. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.